0: Welcome to the Facts versus Feelings podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Dietrich, and I'm joined by my co host, Sonu Varghese. Cutting through the noise in 30 minutes each week with Ryan Dietrich, Chief Market Strategist, and Sonu Varghese, VP Global Macro Strategist, taking out the boring and helping investors focus on what really matters. A quick note before we start the show investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC. An SEC registered investment advisor, Carson Partners, a division of CWM LLC, is a nationwide partnership of advisors. Hi everyone, welcome to the latest edition of Carson's Facts versus Feelings with Ryan and Sonu. Sonu, we have a very very special one today. Where are we exactly right now? Sunny California, Newport Beach. It's not so sunny. It's not sunny. We'll ask, yeah. we'll it's ask a little about foggy. That. We are extremely excited and honored to be joined by Dan Iveson. And Dan, before we even get there, your exact title is what? Sometimes we want to make sure we get the titles correct here. Uh, it's Group Chief Investment Officer. Mm-hmm. Group Chief Investment Officer. Before we even get there, where's the
1: sun? We come to California, Dan. What's going on today? I think in a few hours it'll come out. It's uh it's it's June gloom in uh, October, but um, yesterday was quite a nice day. So we're hoping uh, in an hour or two we'll uh, we'll have the sunshine out. We'll,
0: we'll get there. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot. We're going to do, we're going to talk about stocks and bonds, the Fed, economy, all types of stuff here for the next thirty minutes. It should be a
2: lot of fun. One thing we didn't mention. he's oh. a group chief investment officer of yeah. PIMCO, PIMCO. So That's Pacific that. Investment Management Company. That's a good point, right? Just so that everyone gets. And we always talk about what credit. The credit markets being the smartest people in the room. We say that often on, this, on our podcast. We follow the credit markets, smartest people in the room. We are so
0: honored because you guys are up to $2 trillion, give or take, close enough for government work. Is that yeah, that, that, that's pretty close. Pretty for $2 trillion, so we're, we're excited to get into it. I mean, let's start there. Right? A two. You run, in essence, a $2 trillion firm. What are some major takeaways from that? And what do you? What is your day to day exactly? Just so people kind of learn a little bit more about you that might not know so much.
1: Sure. So to be clear, I, I oversee the investment process um, here um, in the portfolio management team. Um, I have a great colleague, Manny Roman, uh, who joined the firm several years ago uh, that oversees the business elements. So you know, we have a strong partnership. Um, also. I guess I'm approaching uh, the 10-year anniversary of me taking over the oversight of the Portfolio Management Group. Um, Also have a great team of other chief investment officers at the firm, some of which um, have been here longer than myself. Uh, Mark Kiesel, for example, uh, who oversees our credit area, has been at the firm, I think, 28 years now. So uh, a great team, and uh, we we take a team-oriented approach to not only managing the firm but managing portfolios as well.
2: What's the first thing you look at when, you know, in the morning, once you're done with your, you know, morning routine, the personal stuff? What's the first thing you look at with respect to markets? Well, yeah, I usually, you know, fumble around with my cell phone, you know, when the alarm goes off. And
1: as you know, and I don't know if it's the healthiest thing in the world to do, but usually fumbling around and quickly looking at, you know, Bloomberg, CNBC, you know, quick run through of, you know, various news feeds, you know, right when I wake up. And that can be, you know, four in the morning, five in the morning, depending on, what's going on that particular day, Uh, then come into work. It's a short commute. Um, That's a good thing. Um, It's actually too short, um, not too long, which is uh, the rarity here in in California. But usually come in again and just do a quick uh, check of markets, Um, you know, meet with the team, you know, on an as-needed basis. But it's usually just a review of the uh, overnight data. Uh, the data's mattered a lot. Uh, central banks tell us it matters a lot. So uh, it's usually a quick run through of that data. And then we start the day, you know, depending on whatever uh, you know priority at that particular point in time.
0: So let's kind of get into that. Obviously, yields have been going higher. We all under, we all see that. Now, when I, when I watch TV and I listen to CNBC in different places, sometimes you hear, well, yields are higher because the economy's strong. Or you hear yields are higher because future inflation. Or yields are higher because there's no demand. I mean, Maybe it's a combination of those. When, when we see yields so strong like they have been this year going higher, wh- what do you think? Why is – what's the main driver for that, you think?
1: Yeah, so I, I think it's a little bit of all, all, all the factors that, that you mentioned. And um, I think you can you know, delve into some more detail to get a, a more wholesome picture. But you know, the bottom line is that um, we've made a lot of progress on inflation. Uh, inf- inflation is certainly heading in the right direction. We're constructive on it, continuing to head you know towards central bank targets. But it still remains elevated uh, relative to um, you know, the last 10-15 year period, and fixed income investors, you know, continue to be concerned uh, about the uh, the inflation dynamic. Uh, economic growth has been very, very strong. Um, we've had um, a retail sales number, um, yeah. you know, print recently that was much stronger than we in the market anticipated. Um, so it's a reminder that there's a lot of resiliency uh, in the U.S. economy. Um, and uh, with inflation remaining elevated, um, there's concern that the Fed will need to do a bit more in terms of tightening uh, and perhaps keep rates higher for longer uh, than what markets anticipated. We think that's also contributing to um, the higher yield environment. Uh, And then a third point, and I think an increasingly important point, are concerns about debt sustainability. Uh, We're running very high deficits relative to um, the strength of the overall economy. That's highly unusual. There's some nuance as to why um, you know the deficits you know optically appear higher than they in fact are one relates to just California. You know, we sure. haven't filed our taxes yet. We got another one-month reprieve last yeah, week. Yeah, we
0: heard yeah, last we night you that. guys get a little more time to do it, apparently. So huh? We have even more time. I <laughs> think a lot
1: of people to think about to about it. file in April. Yeah, so. this time a lot of people <laughs> actually got them in. So they made their payments, you know, before the extension. So it'll be less um, uptake than before. But the bottom line is there's some nuance there in around student loans that have kept deficits, you know, elevated short term. The reality is we're spending more money um, um, than, um, than we probably should from the standpoint of, um, you, you know, Fixed income investors' um, um, perceptions of of, of overall debt sustainability. And we think that will be an increasing challenge if we don't get deficits under control. And I think that has um, led to some um, higher yields out in the long end of the yield curve. Those are three reasons. Um, I I think there are probably a few more, but I think those are three primary um, concerns. One other quick point I'll make uh, it's really not yet, at least, about. Uh, inflation remaining high over the longer period of time. You look at break-even inflation rates, um, they still are very, very well behaved. Mm -hmm. So we think this is much more a story about technicals, debt sustainability, higher real rates, uh, and um, more short-term challenges with inflation. The markets still remain fairly confident in central banks being able to
2: ultimately get inflation under control. Bring it to the economy, you mentioned the economy has been resilient and we got that recent retail sales print, which is much better than expected.
0: Two months in a row.
2: Yeah, yeah, two months in a row. And yeah, they revised up previous months, right? Uh, I think July and August. So why do you think the economy has held up as strong as it has, especially in the face of like the most aggressive Fed since uh, I think the early 80s? Yeah. So, uh, you know, one, you know, the yeah you know there's been just
1: a lot of a post covid uh enthusiasm I think this reopening process um, has has had a, a more significant impact um, on the economy than people originally um, anticipated mm-hmm. I still think um, there's a lot of um, fiscal stimulus um, in in uh in the hands of consumers and, and even corporations. Uh, we're seeing, you know, that get spent down or eroded through higher inflation, but we do think that that has had an impact. And probably the biggest issue relates to policy lags. We always know uh, monetary policy happens with um, long and variable lags. Long and variable lags. And, and I think yeah. that they're longer and perhaps even more variable this time. Um, and the simple reason for that, as that we all know, is that This has been a real short cycle. You had a COVID pandemic shock. Rates go essentially to zero. And huge segments of the economy being able to lock in incredibly low rates, uh, whether you're talking about 30-year fixed-rate mortgages or uh, investment-grade or high-yield-rated corporations being able to lock in these low yields. So thus far, despite the fact that interest rates have gone higher, uh, particularly the front end of the curve, it hasn't had the same you know, type of impact. We have very few adjustable-rate mortgages, at least in this country, relative to history. Mm-hmm and you had such a low-rate environment um, that you know, you've know you seen this lock-in effect. So uh, we think monetary policy is having an impact. It's just moving very, very slowly this time. Another point is that we know that private credit markets have grown quite significantly. Mm-hmm. They, too, um, are much more sticky in terms of overall marks and, 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 you know, at least the short-term reaction to policy. So I think mean, those are some of the factors that are leading to an extended cycle and, um, you know, therefore more, uh, more resiliency across the economy, at least over the short term.
0: Digging into the idea of the economy, you know, we've got this, I don't know you called, the new economy or the old economy. Let's just call the old economy last decade, right? 2% inflation, 2% growth on GDP. Now this, obviously, decade, we're seeing much higher inflation. We talked about that, but it looks like more economic growth as well. What is kind of, you think, the path of inflation in the economy going forward? Is it going to be more like the last two years or are we going to go right back to 2% inflation and 2% growth like we had last decade? Because the Fed keeps telling us 2% targeted inflation. We're both a little skeptical we're going to see 2% inflation going forward. Love to hear your take on that.
1: Yeah, um, you know, I... I think things will be different. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't think we're going back to the yep. pre-COVID or pre-pandemic uh, world of incredibly low real interest rates and incredibly low inflation with all the focus on you know, uh, combating disinflationary yes. or deflationary pressures. Right. We think we're in a different world. We don't think it's that different. Um, and, but, but let me be clear. Uh, we do think um, equilibrium inflation rates will likely be higher. Um, so we do think that central banks will eventually get inflation back down towards target, but inflation will likely be higher than it was pre-COVID. And maybe more volatile, too? It Absolutely more volatile. Um, so, so we do think that you're going to have more inflation volatility, probably more real economic volatility, less ability for policymakers to suppress volatility like they did during much of the you know, GFC recovery mm-hmm. period. And you also probably have higher equilibrium real rates. Uh, I don't want to put the audience to sleep today, so we're not going to get into our star discussions for too long, at least. Um, but, I, but we do think there's some reasons why real rates will be higher, higher global debt levels, the more need for physical investment to deal with climate, a, a, as an example, regulatory impact on how capital is allocated across these sectors, um, reshoring, um, geopolitical risk, outright war um, is going to lead to of less efficient flow of capital around the globe. All of these factors, including even demographics, will likely put some pressure on real um, yields over the long run. So if it was pre-pandemic, if you could think about neutral real rates, you know, somewhere, you know, on the front end of the curve near zero, perhaps they're, you know, 50 basis points higher or half a percent higher, maybe even, you know, 1% higher uh, in the extreme. That would be quite significant, uh, but it's, it's at least possible. So we do think we're in a new world. We don't think we're necessarily in a world of uncontrollable inflation, uh, a massive spike in real yields, at least in this country, but we do think it's a different world and people should not think about reverting back to the old normal. I do think we're in some semblance of a, of a, of a new secular type uh, environment. So
0: we're being joined by Dan Iverson, the group CIO at PIMCO. This is the latest Facts versus Feelings with Ryan and Sonu. Sonu, go ahead. Just one of the Remind people yeah. how important this is and so awesome this is. You're taking some time with us today.
2: Speaking of that, like you talk real yields. And so yields really just for everyone listening, is, you know, your nominal, your, <clears throat> the usual interest rates you see minus inflation expectations, right? So coming to, you know, those inflation expectations, and you said, you know, there could be more inflation volatility in the future. And you think about bond markets. Now, PIMCO is a big part of the bond market. How do you price that? Like when you think, okay, inflation is going to be more, more volatile in the future, along with all the other structural issues you mentioned, higher deficits, things like that. There's demographics too, right, An aging society. How do you put all that together and say, you know what? Maybe the ten-year shouldn't ten-year interest rate shouldn't be three percent. It should be four or four and a half or five percent. What do you think about that? Yeah, you know, what we try to do is we we try to break down the components as you mentioned as, as to what goes into a uh, nominal bond
1: yield. The good news is we have things like the tips or the inflation protected bond market that give you a sense of, you know, the ice, you know, a a, a real yield versus an inflation break even rate. Now you have to adjust for liquidity and all, but um, we we do try to think about, you know the key pieces that add up to the ultimate nominal yield. So real rates, as an example, um, we think that they're likely going to be higher this cycle, you know, on the order of a half a percent or so in our, in our base case thinking. So, you know, instead of a zero real yield world, we think we may be in a half a percent real yield world. Um, then we add a term premium um, to that. Um, we do think that there'll be some normalization in um, the yield curve relative to what we grew to expect. Uh, pre-pandemic. Um, some of that just related to higher global debt levels. So we'll look at a term premium, let's just say, you know, a, a 1% term premium if we're looking to come up with a fair, you know, 10-year type
2: yield. And just for everyone, term premium is, you know, you have the choice of investing in, say, a 10-year bond or, you know, taking one-year bonds and then doing up, you know, doing it year after year after year. And because you're going long term with the 10-year, there's more uncertainty that's sort of captured in the term premium, as you called it.
1: That, that's correct. So it's, it's compensation for uncertainty around, you know, how much debt is going to be issued over time, the ability for someone to pay back their debt over the long term, or this question around inflation, um, in, inflationary risks. You typically want to get compensated for, you know, taking longer term exposure there. So um, that, that's the idea behind getting paid to lend longer versus shorter. Um, and again, we try to incorporate that into the analysis. So, you know, a half a percent real rate plus one percent of a term premium gets you to one and a half percent. And then what's your expected, uh, inflation rate? Now, if it was a two percent target, you're at three and a half percent by adding those numbers up. If you think you're in a higher inflationary world, maybe a half a percent more inflation. Now you get up to, if I'm doing my math right, a a four percent type, um, fair value. So, Mm Um, That type of um, analysis we'll look to do to come up with a a long-term fair value type, type, type rate.
0: Want to know more about the impact the 2024 election may have on the markets and the economy? We'll be covering everything advisors and their clients need to know in the lead up to election day, including what to expect from the markets, news out of Washington, and what historically happens after elections. You can find all of our 2024 election content at carsongroup.com slash election. So we've hit about the halfway mark. So far, so good. Doing okay? Yeah. Good, thank you. Yeah, I think so, I think so. Yeah, I think we're good. I want to ask, obviously, when you took over for Bill Gross, big name, big personality, a lot of financial advisors listen to this. Small business owner, financial advisors. When you took over, obviously, a bigger company, what are some of the things you learned from that? Like what are some maybe a failure or a success that you learned taking over um, that someone who ran their own company could really leverage and, and continue to help them
1: grow. You know, first of all I, I learned a lot from uh, from from Bill Gross. Yeah, um, that sure. that was uh, incredibly helpful uh, to be able to uh, step in, into the into the leadership role and I think it's a lot more challenging to actually build a company um, from zero AUM you know, to $2 trillion of AUM while generating strong investment performance than maintaining a firm that already was um, very, very well positioned for future success. So I think the degree of difficulty much lower than what um, Bill dealt with. And I think one of his greatest accomplishments was building, uh, building PIMCO. Uh, but one thing I've learned is um, you know, to um, be flexible in your approach to management. Um, I mentioned earlier, um, have a great um, set of teammates. Uh, we've worked together for a long time. we don't always agree in a narrow sense but have tremendous respect for one another and very very early um, in in um, in in um you know you know, f- you know my my uh you know, time you know overseeing the portfolio management group I, I just even more appreciated the need to lean on uh my colleagues um, who are better at certain things than i am. Uh, I learned from them tremendously um, so again it's been a a, a team oriented uh, approach uh, also i I think you always learn that um you know, what you, what you spec out on paper is different than, um, you know, how, how the world works in reality. And again, um, I, I think you need to listen a lot um, as you take on more leadership responsibilities. Um, listen and learn. And uh, even when I've had the right strategic decision, I haven't always implemented properly. Sometimes you, you know, have um, the wrong strategic decision and you get a little luck in your favor uh, or vice versa. So I think it's important that, to step back and look at the decisions you've made, and try to learn, um, particularly learn from uh, things that haven't gone as well as you desired. So it's been trying to, you know, to to, to learn from a lot of good people at PIMCO, a little bit of external uh, advice, uh, treat people with respect, and again, really, really leverage team, because it's hard to, um, you know, regardless of the size of the company that you're
2: overseeing, um, it's it's just tough to do things on your own without, um, you know, leveraging the great ideas of others. On that, like, PIMCO has always had amazing access, and, and we've... Uh... You know, found that very useful when we get your notes, access to policymakers, right? people who've been at the Fed, including a former Fed chair like Ben, someone like Ben Bernanke, who's on your uh, investment committee and you know, is there to help you all make long-term, think about the long-term and decisions, things like that. But how does all that translate to day-to-day portfolio decisions? It's one thing to have like the models that are like, oh, we think the world is going to go in this direction versus that. But then when it comes to, okay, now I need to buy and sell certain things, how does how do you translate that to portfolio investment decisions?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And and again, we want to. Um, um, I'm a big believer in the behavioral finance literature. And um, what, what's very very important, um, you know, when, when looking at that literature is, is is to make sure that you're getting good outside contrarian views. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's always hard for younger employees um, that aren't you know you know in, in leadership roles to be fully able to disagree with the boss. I think having an advisory board member uh, group, you know, Ben Bernanke, you know, Gordon Brown, others, um, you're talking about, you know, highly accomplished individuals uh, with global perspectives, um, different perspectives, some coming from the political world, some uh, economists that aren't shy at all of of sharing sure. different views, and we look to leverage that group um, on a regular basis uh, in testing our, our conviction levels. Mm-hmm. Providing us with unique insights and at times their views will be sufficiently different from ours in the markets that they really really sway our positioning. I remember, you know, back several years ago where our advisory board had a much more constructive view on China. This was back when China was growing at very, very, you know, high numbers and, 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 and had accelerating growth. Uh, we had been you know a bit more negative about China. Um, they convinced us we should take a fresh look, be more optimistic, and that was you know literally the difference between maintaining strong global growth over that period. We made a lot of money from their specific insights more often than not their subtle views their contrarian views they help us just think about how we prioritize um, our own internal meetings um, they just help you know give us you know a, a fresh mindset um, so it doesn 't necessarily mean we meet with these folks um, and it turns into a a, a an actual trade, sure. it's really just helping us um, understand, you know, research priorities and perspectives we should be entertaining as part of the overall um, part of
2: the overall process. Fascinating way to think about it. Like you have all the outside folks coming in to almost like break open your little bubble or, you know, of the, the investment team and things like that.
1: That's right. And, and, and Dr. Bernanke chairs that committee. They meet on their own with specific instructions um, to not be swayed at all by PIMCO. So we will have typically one PIMCO individual there that simply serves as a facilitator or a moderator. They don't enter the discussion. They don't prioritize the discussion. They're there literally to take notes and just make sure we adhere to
2: time and that everyone gets to, gets to speak, basically. And when you see that, you're like, oh, I don't think of this, this. is interesting. Yeah, that that good 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 example of, of how how it works.
0: When when um, we talk about bonds, let's circle around. You know, is now you think a good time? Obviously, it's been a rough go for bonds. We we know that is now a better time for your average investor to think about you know going out in duration, adding some bonds, and then part two to this. Is bonds still one of the best diversifiers for stocks, right? A lot of people listen to this, focus on macro and equities. We don't focus on bonds as much. But do you think bonds, because lately, both have been going down to a degree. I mean, last year they did, right? And um, we've seen other periods when stocks have sold off, bonds have sold off, obviously, with the higher yields we're getting at. So what is the best diversifier still for stocks, and what do you think about bonds right now?
1: Yeah, so they've been far less of a diversifier. And over extended periods of time, they haven't been a diversifier at all which has been a, a challenge for bonds, it's been a challenge for stocks, it's just been a challenge for investors looking to come up with a, an appropriate asset allocation. Um, but to answer your first question on, on value, uh, there's great value um, in the fixed income markets for a longer-term investor. And what I mean by that is that they could certainly get cheaper tomorrow. Um, there's no guarantees that we don't see you know, further weakness over the short term. But what's great news about bond markets is that the starting yield is a phenomenal predictor for the forward return over a three- to five-year period. So if you look at the five-year um, return correlation versus starting yields, it's above 90%. Not surprising, because if you put together a high-quality bond portfolio, you earn your coupon and you ultimately get your money back. You can put together a high-quality bond portfolio today without a lot of economic sensitivity, and you can generate yields in the 6 7 even 7.5% type range. If you hold that portfolio, um, like we do in a lot of our funds, um, or you do it in a ladder construct as well, you are highly likely to earn that, you know, six, seven, seven and a half percent over the next five years. That historically has looked very, very good versus what you will typically earn on cash. It also looks darn good versus um, equities as well. You compare fixed income to equity valuations today; they look quite attractive. Um, you know, under under you know popular valuation mm-hmm. frameworks. And, you know, back to this correlation piece, locally uh, or, you know, over shorter periods of time, bonds have not provided insurance benefits. But you only have to go back to earlier this year when the SBB crisis hit the markets. You had a massive and powerful rally in the fixed income markets, particularly in the front end of the curve. As inflation um, gets more into control and heads towards central bank targets, and if you see even some modest economic weakness, we do think on a go-forward basis, correlations could improve, meaning that fixed income begins to help reduce volatility in a portfolio. That's sort of icing on the cake. Sure. Even if it didn't, there's reasons why you want to enter the fixed income market. Still get the yield. A lot of those yield. higher yields. Yeah. But we do think correlations will get better, Um as the inflation situation gets more under control. Now, similar to the earlier point as to whether we're in a new paradigm, we very well may be. I I don't know that we are going to have the same insurance characteristics um, in markets um, like we had um, pre-COVID because with inflationary risks being a bit more balanced, we're likely going to have periods of more volatility and where these correlations break down at least relative to where they were uh, pre-pandemic. But that can um, be a frustration for a more static asset allocation type framework, it's great for active asset management. Um, you know, volatility, two-way risk, less synchronized cycles, more volatility in, in absolute inflation levels, relative inflation levels. That's real, real good um, for the relative value opportunity set, but it may not be
2: um, as, as neat and easy as it was for clients looking to allocate between different segments of the market. Right. So, I So, mean, you mentioned like high quality credit. Just taking the other side of that, like the... Stuff that's not high quality, right? What are you seeing there, and are there signs? Are there any worrying signs there with respect to, you know, high yield, the the high yield market, where you know companies that are less uh, well rated as your rather than your Apple, JP Morgans of the world, you know, are they finding it harder to borrow, and what does that mean for the economy? Yeah, so there are concerns. Um, you know, we
1: mentioned earlier that you know a lot of companies were able to term up their debt. Mm-hmm. They didn't term it out to infinity. They didn't even term it out for 30 years. They bought themselves some time where, you know, maturities are um, not this year or not next year. But they're, but they're coming in the next few years, and if rates remain elevated, companies are going to have to roll that debt, and that will be a challenge, particularly if it's occurring, you know, into a weakening economy. Uh, But it certainly bought corporations some time, and initial conditions are pretty good in the investment-grade market. They're actually pretty good in the high-yield market. Today's high-yield market is not like the old high-yield market. Leverage is lower. Inherent credit quality is better. A lot of the more aggressive lending has migrated into the private credit markets and into the senior-secured loan markets. They are very, very different, and they're different in that they are entirely floating-rate markets. The investment-grade and the high-yield markets are predominantly fixed-rate, so people have been cushioned from central bank policy rates going higher, but is it is a um, um, you know a, a concern in the senior secured loan or the private credit space where you have floating rate debt, uh, where companies are being they're, they're feeling the full brunt of central bank policy tightening and they're being forced to pay higher and high higher debt service um, mm-hmm. on these loans that they took out in a very low rate environment. You're already beginning to see some weakness in financial metrics there. You've seen elevated downgrades and defaults, and we think the longer the Fed stays at these higher rates, the more challenges you're gonna see in those areas of the market. Commercial real estate are very, very similar dynamic. So we are most cautious about senior secured loans in segments of the legacy private credit markets. High yield, you know, spreads tightened a lot since the regional bank uh, risks have, have dissipated. At current spread levels, we're neutral to a little bit biased to reduce high yield on the margin, um, but not wildly concerned. Um, we think there, you know, you know, credit quality held up reasonably uh, reasonably well. So, I think we have
0: time for one more question each. We're we're nearing the end here on the latest Facts versus Feelings podcast with Dan Iverson, the Group CIO at Pimco. My last question is what I like to ask a lot of times. You mentioned Bill Gross already, but maybe let's go somewhere else. Who's a mentor or two of yours
1: over the years, and what have you learned from them? Well, you know, professionally, um, it's um – Scott Simon, who um, used to run our, our mortgage desk here here at yeah. Pimco. I, um, I've been here twenty five years; just hit my twenty fifth anniversary. Um, Congratulations! Thank you very much. Yeah. The company's fifty two years old, I believe, right? The company's right yeah, 52, a, lot, a lot longer so. than that I've been I'm, there
0: half the time though. That's pretty good. It's been right. around
1: a while, but I think we're actually you know, um, been around a little 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 longer than that. But I when I when I started though, I um, like a lot of you know MBAs you know joining up you know, a, a firm with a, you know, a, a demanding culture. It, it, it was rough. Um, I had learned a lot in school, but, um, you know, as we know, you know, actually trading markets is a little bit different than uh, than, than what you learn in, in the textbooks. Um, so I was struggling a little bit. And Scott Simon, you know, came in. He had, uh, you know, been very, very well-regarded researcher and trader in the agency mortgage market on the street. And he, um, he, he gave me a lifeline. Um, not only, you know, pulling me back, you know, into the fold here at PIMCO, but also just really allowing me to grow within the organization, uh, supporting me early on in my career. Um, There's other people um, on the sell side, uh, a gentleman named Jonathan Pierce, um, who's been uh, still still working um, in the business that was always helpful um, to me as well. So professionally, you always need a a lot of luck and great mentorship. Those are two examples. On the personal front, um, my my parents um, were phenomenal. Um, I grew up in a small town. Um, You know, um, not not um, not not a place where you know a, a lot of people get out of the community and and, and move into a, um, in, into this you know sector of, of um, or, or this particular industry. Just had a lot of support early on um, in my lifetime. Uh, value of education, uh, providing uh, the ability to get the education required to do this type of thing. Uh, Can I ask where you grew up? I grew up in uh, Oxford, Massachusetts, um, okay. a, a small town outside of Worcester, Mass. Um, the not, opposite end of the country. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I'd actually like to head back that way at some point. So you still but, a Patriots uh, fan? I am. Okay. Um, I hope we lose every game and get say. a good, get a good, good <laughs> get a good draft pick <laughs> yeah, exactly. now. So we're in the we're in a different <laughs> yeah. mindset right now. But I absolutely over. Chicago overlo- has that to really work, help. you know, right
2: yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, we're in a
1: battle for the worst. Uh, the, you know, the worst record. Hopefully. But yeah, all the Boston sports. Um, although I, I've I've grown to like the Anaheim Ducks out here because it's fun to go to live hockey. Um, so that's that's fun for for
2: me and the family. So one more question? Yeah, go ahead. I'll, Final I'll it, one. Make it good, Sony. Make it yeah. good. Now, I'll bring it back to bonds and why hold bonds. And one big reason is what we got to earlier. You know, you want bonds to zig when stocks are zagging, usually. And we get to that correlation benefit, right? And with, you talked about maybe that's going away. But we just saw, you know, a couple of weeks ago, the tragic events in Israel. Uh, you have geopolitical events. And, you know, Treasury interest rates, uh, Treasury yields went down. Right? It was almost like, oh, it's, everyone wants the safe asset, and that safe asset has tended to be U.S. treasuries, right? Will that continue going forward? Is Are U.S. treasuries the safe asset that everyone would want to hold? Yeah, so I've been making, a, I guess it's a little bit of a joke. I, I said maybe we can't call Treasury
1: the riskless uh, or the mm-hmm. risk-free rate um, with you know the recent downgrades in our current mm-hmm. deficits. It's certainly a low risk rate. So mm-hmm. over the near term, we still think that Treasuries and the U.S. dollar will benefit from flight-to-quality flows. Now, it requires more nuance in a world of elevated inflation, but when real bad things happen, we do think there's going to be a rush to higher-quality bonds. Uh, and I think that's the additional benefit you get from yields being as high as they are today. Uh, in addition to that predictable attractive return for someone willing to hold for a three- to five-year period, you also get um, the potential benefit of price appreciation when really bad things happen. Now, of course, you know the events in Israel are, are tragic. We don't want bad things to happen. But when they do in this world, we do think that there are plenty of scenarios where at these yields as a starting point, you could end up getting a rally at the same time that other areas of your portfolio are selling off, because typically stocks, when people worry about the world, they go in the exact opposite direction. So that may not be as strong of a relationship as it was in the past, but we still think for the, for the foreseeable future, um, U.S. treasuries and other high-quality U.S. bonds are going to have um, that type of performance potential. Um, Almost like an insurance that, that's, potential. That, 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 that's correct. I
0: think it's a great way to end it. Well Dan, thank you so much from Sona and myself. Carson Group, obviously Pimco is a tremendous partner. It uh, means a lot. I know the listeners are gonna love the listeners are gonna love this uh, this podcast as well. And everybody, we'll be back next week with the latest facts versus feelings, but this was a really good one. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank Dan. you guys. Really appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you. Information provided on facts versus feelings for some of our geese and Ryan Dietrich are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. The statements and opinions of show guests may not be reflective of CWM LLC or its affiliates. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested indirectly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy assures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Guests on Facts vs. Feelings are not affiliated with CWM LLC.